looking at this uh, phenomenal event that is recorded in uh, the book of Acts by Luke under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But uh, this is a tremendous advance in God's kingdom where Gentiles are now going to be uh, allowed into the covenant people. So this is a a phenomenal uh, passage that we're uh, studying this morning. We're going to be looking at the first 33 verses, which is a very large portion. We'll try to work our way through it, um, uh, hopefully quickly. But the point that stands out to me is that God's guidance for us is often mysterious. We shouldn't be surprised by this because Scripture tells us in Isaiah chapter 55 that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts, says the Lord. So because of God's infinite wisdom, He will guide us down paths that we don't often understand or comprehend. You see, we're all on a pilgrimage, somewhat like Israel was in the wilderness. We're on a pilgrimage through this world. And as they oftentimes had no clue of how God was leading them, where they would go next, or when they would even leave the camp, So we too struggle sometimes with discerning the guidance of the Lord. They knew ultimately, according to God's promise, that they would end up in the promised land. But the route to get there was a mystery to them. That was under the control of Almighty Sovereign God. They were probably often perplexed by God's ways and events in their life. Lord, why are you leading us here? Lord, why not over there? Lord, why are we staying here for so long? Why don't you move us quicker, faster? And so we struggle with this. And we all at times uh, have perplexities and, and difficulties in understanding what God is doing in our life. These uh, times of perplexity and confusion and bewilderment are all about what God's plan is in taking us from point A to point B. And sometimes from our perspective, it's like driving your car in a very dense fog. You can't hardly see maybe 10 feet out and everything just is grayed out. And you're really not sure where we're going. You're not sure what's ahead. And I think a lot of times our Christian lives are lived in that kind of, a, of an atmosphere where we're not, we don't understand what God is doing. Because God's ways and God's guidance is often very mysterious to us. It's in times like that that we all need to learn to trust in God's providential plan. And though we may be uncertain as to what that plan is, it does not mean we're not in God's hand. Uncertainty about His plan doesn't take you out of His hand. We are still in His hand. And He's going to lead every believer ultimately to the promised land. But He may take us down paths that we never imagined. And it's at that time, particularly when we are caught up in the fog of confusion, that we just simply need to rest in the truth that we are in our Father's hand. And though we don't understand the path we take, we know God does. And we have to learn to trust Him during those times. This is really what is about to happen to Peter. God is about to move him from point A, from the typical Jewish attitude towards Gentiles, to point B, where he finally understands that it's a part of God's covenant plan that they be a part of God's covenant people. This is like a a paradigm shift in Peter's mind and in Peter's theology. And this is, again, one of the most profound truths of the entire New Testament. But it's a truth that did not come easily for Peter to understand. Uh, It contradicted his natural thinking. And so we see that God is going to lead him slowly, step by step by step, into this truth. And along the way, Peter didn't really know what the end game was going to be. He's struggling with understanding it. 
But God's in control and God knows the beginning from the end and He's guiding Him as He is with you in your times of difficulty as well. Let's begin by uh, looking at verse 1. We see, uh, now there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. Now we know that uh, Peter is still down in Joppa. Remember, he has just raised Dorcas from the dead in Joppa. And he's, the last verse of chapter 9 says he was staying with a tanner named Simon. So now, the Spirit of God directs our attention 30-35 miles north to the city of Caesarea. And here we're meeting up with this man by the name of Cornelius who was a centurion in the Roman army and he was of the Italian cohort. The first thing we've got to understand is that God's going to get Peter from Joppa to Caesarea. But this was not the place that Peter normally would want to go. And the reason why that is because Caesarea at this point in time was the capital of the Roman administration of the province of Judea. As of A.D. 6, Caesarea was really the capital for the Roman government in Judea. So Pontius Pilate, for example, and all the other governors, this is where they lived year-round in Caesarea, and he would make trips to Jerusalem as the occasion required. But their main headquarters, their capital city, if you will, the palace, the seat of their government was in Caesarea. So from the Jewish perspective, Caesarea was a pagan, Greek, Roman city that just reeked with Greek domination of the Jews. It it just reeked with, with this Gentile invasion that all of the Roman government and the influence and the power and the authority over Judea could all flow out of Caesarea. So the typical Jew looked at Caesarea as being an apostate place. This is not a place you'd want to go on vacation on, on, the, uh, on the Mediterranean. The ruins of this are pretty spectacular. Uh, we know that Herod the Great actually uh, rebuilt this in, in the years B.C. And he named it after Caesar Augustus. So it was given the name Caesarea because King Herod wanted to honor the, uh, the Roman emperor at that particular time. If you look at the ruins of the city, it's, it's pretty spectacular. <clears throat> we know that uh, Herod built himself a palace, which eventually was taken over by the Roman uh, leaders and the governors like Pontius Pilate later on. But he built this marvelous palace on a little section of rock and land that jutted out about a hundred yards into the Mediterranean. Just a perfect setting uh, for a palace. Uh, It was quite a a glorious building. What we're seeing right here is the remnant of a pool that was on the inside of this palace compound. And it was probably two stories on both sides, elaborate columns. It was really a, a phenomenal palace that he lived in. Uh, Again, you can kind of see the outlines of where the pool would have been. It had been much deeper than what it shows in here. But right to the south of the palace, where this is where Pontius Pilate would would be living uh, here in Acts. Right to the right of it, there was a, a great Greek theater that had been built. And of course, they've rebuilt it to some degree. It could hold thousands of people. It was where they had a lot of their entertainment, where they had their plays. So, so it, it just dominated Greek culture in the land of the Jews. And that's what made it so heinous to the Jewish people. So a phenomenal uh, theater there. And uh, from this, you're looking at the top of the theater, looking out to where the palace was that Herod built that later on Pontius Pilate turned into the seat of the Roman government. So you can kind of see it jutting out there at the top and some of the remnants of, uh, of that palace. This is uh, an aerial view. You can see uh, where his palace is right down here. To the upper right would be the theater. And to the left you find this uh, hippodrome. 
And this is where they would have their horse races, their chariot races, all their athletic events within the Hippodrome. So this city, again, just the, everything was Greek. Everything was Roman. Uh, you can see a, an artist's uh, rendition of what Herod's palace might have looked like before it was later on destroyed. But you can, again, see the layout and all those uh, homes back up in the, in the upper part may have been where, where uh, Cornelius himself possibly lived. Uh, here's another uh, view of the Hippodrome where they would have again raced their chariots and all that kind of stuff back then. Uh, you can see another uh, picture of it from there. This is kind of from, from Herod's palace or, or where Pontius Pilate lived. You could just look right out your window and see all these spectacular events taking place. But one of the things that made Caesarea such an important city is that uh, Herod the Great uh, built in a tremendous harbor. And he had to load out a lot of brick and a lot of stone out into the ocean to actually, actually encircle it. And this is, you can't see it all here, but this harbor became the, the dominant commercial and military harbor along the Mediterranean coast. So everyone went to Caesarea. If you did business, you went there. This is the best harbor along the coast. Uh, if you want to see what it may have looked like in the days that Herod, uh, King Herod actually built it, it may have looked something like this. And then there was the aqueduct, or the aqueduct, where they would have piped in fresh water from 10 miles away so Caesarea could just have all the, the running water that they wanted and one of the great uh, archaeological finds is this stone which actually mentions Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. So, you know, sometimes you'll run into liberals a while back that said Pontius Pilate probably wasn't even a real person. Well, they found a stone and it has his name on it. They found uh, seals that have the name Pilate on it as well. So this is one of, the, one of the great finds that obviously shows he was a prefect during this very time period. So what we're seeing is that here in verse 1, uh, we have a man by the name of Cornelius. And uh, he lives in, in uh, Caesarea. God is going to eventually get Peter to Caesarea, but from Peter's mindset, to go to Caesarea means you're going to the very point of the spear, the very beachhead of Roman domination, Gentile occupation, a city that was just full of Greek and Roman culture that was idolatrous and immoral to your, to your typical average Jew. So to go there would be like to go into enemy territory. And yet these are some of the things that God is doing in getting Peter from point A to point B. So he's going to actually take him into this city to meet with a, a Gentile centurion. Now Cornelius, we can learn something about him. It says he's of the Italian cohort. Cohort had about Six groups of 100 soldiers each. So about 600 soldiers in a cohort. And it's from Italy. So these would be natural Roman citizens who were members of this particular cohort. So they, it would have a higher status than those that were just uh, drafted in from other lands. These are kind of your true Romans who are in a part of this cohort. Uh, Cornelius is a centurion. We read in verse uh, 1 which means that he commanded over a hundred soldiers. He would be like a non-commissioned officer today, like a captain in the army. We're also told in verse 2 that he was a devout man, one who feared God with his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. So he was a devout man. Showed he feared God with all of his household. And the word God-fearer can have different nuances, but... It refers to a Gentile who never fully embraced Judaism, but he did appreciate the monotheism of Judaism, the one God as opposed to worshiping all the many pagan gods of the Roman culture and the Greek culture. As a God-fearer, he would have uh, embraced some of the moral laws taught by the Jews in their scripture, 
adopted some of their customs, but he was not a full convert. So he was still a Gentile. He was still an outsider. He was still excluded from God's covenant with Israel. Even though they, would, they, they certainly understood that he was closer than your typical Gentile would be at that point in time. We also know in verse 2 that he gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. So he put his money where his heart was. And he, this uh, gave him a measure of respect among the Jews because he would give a lot of money to the Jewish people, maybe the Jewish poor people. And so that he was a, a good heathen in their minds. At least he was, he was uh, helping them financially. And he was a man of prayer. So obviously Cornelius is a man who is an object of God's prevenient grace. God is working in his heart. God is preparing him for salvation. God is gradually drawing him. So he has an appreciation for the God of Israel. And then we read in verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after they had explained every, he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So we find at this point that uh, the angel or the voice speaks to Cornelius. He says, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. In other words, God is mindful of what you've been doing. Basically, is what's saying. What, what this is saying. It's a memorial. God has seen it. God has remembered it. And now He's about to, to respond. And again, this is all, I think, a, a, an outworking of God's preparatory or prevenient grace in drawing uh, Cornelius to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So He sends out two servants and a devout soldier and they got to make this trip 35 miles from Caesarea all the way down to Joppa. So it's going to take them. So this is 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which is the time he has the vision. So they'll leave later that day, and they're going to get to Joppa around noontime the next day. So at this point now, we pick it up back down in Joppa where Peter is. So we read in verse 9, on the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That would be about noontime. And he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. And a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times. And immediately the object was taken up into the sky. So here we have Peter and Joppa. And what's uh, the irony of this is you remember who else was in Joppa in the Old Testament? Prophet by the name of Jonah. And God was uh, commissioning Jonah to go preach to the Gentiles in Nineveh. And how did Jonah respond? He went to Joppa, got on a ship to get as far away as he could from what from where Nineveh was. So he rebelled and went in the opposite direction. We know the story. It didn't turn out so good for him. He was swallowed by the great fish. Eventually vomited up on the shore. I wouldn't be surprised if that fish uh, threw him up back at Joppa again. But wherever that was, he eventually learned the lesson. So here's Peter. And he is also being tested and carrying out a mission to the Gentiles. But only this time, by the grace of God, Peter 
will obey and kind of reverse the sad failure of Jonah. Now remember at this point in time, Peter's mindset is he's still thinking as a Jew. He's a Christian. It's been probably six years since the death and resurrection of Christ. But the, all the early uh, Christians, by and large, were all Jews. A few Samaritans from Philip's ministry. But he still basically thought as a Jew. And in the Jewish world, again, the only way for a Gentile to be saved was that he first must become a Jew. And he must submit to all the rituals and the circumcision and everything of becoming a Jew. Now, all of this is going to change with Peter, but at this point, he's not there yet. God is taking him uh, down this path. And, uh, but for the Jews, unless a Gentile first became a Jew, then there's no way he's going to heaven at all. So, God is working with Peter. And God is slowly bringing him into this truth. And what's so interesting is that uh, who is Peter staying with at this point in time? Well, we saw at the end of chapter 9 that it was a, uh, a tanner also by the same name of Simon. And we also read in verse 6 that he's staying with a, a tanner named Simon whose house is by the sea. So he's staying with a tanner. Now, that is significant. That's, a, that's one of those little steps that God is bringing Peter to. Because a tanner in the Jewish mindset was an unclean profession. Now, this tanner obviously had come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's why Peter is staying with him and having fellowship with him. But an, a, a tanner was an unclean person who was involved in an unclean profession. Because the Bible says, the Old Testament, that if you touch a dead thing, if you touch a dead animal, you contract ceremonial uncleanness. So tanners were ostracized. They had to live 50 cubits outside of the town that they were in. And rabbinical law even said that if a woman discovered that her betrothed, the man she was going to marry, was really a tanner, she could break the engagement. I mean, that's how bad they look down on tanners. But here we find Peter is staying with a tanner. Someone who killed animals and tanned their hides and made garments out of them. So this was an unclean man in an unclean profession. And yet Peter now, you can see the, the walls are starting to crumble down. He is now willing to stay with this man and associate with him. So you can see God is slowly taking uh, Peter through this path that will lead him ultimately to understand the gospel now out for uh, the Gentiles as well. So God is tearing down the wall of the ceremonial uncleanness laws set forth in the Old Covenant. You know, it's interesting, sometimes we work with dead things too. Many of us uh, work with those who are spiritually dead. And sometimes if we're not careful, they can defile us spiritually because of their own influence and unbelief. And I think it's important that we who are spiritually alive always be on guard against the influence of the, the dead things that oftentimes we have to work with and be around unbelievers and, and their values. And we need to continually be taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. But Peter is dealing with this on a, on a ceremonial level uh, as it was taught in the law. So we find in verse 10 and following that Peter now gets hungry. He's desiring to eat something. And while they're making food, uh, he falls into a trance. Now he's on the top of a building. A lot of the homes back then had a flat a roof line, and you could go up on top of there and take your siesta. And being on the on the shore, you probably had a wonderful sea breeze coming in. But he, around the noon hour, he falls into a trance. And in verse 11, what he sees is the sky opens up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by the four corners to the ground. So it's coming from heaven down. So obviously this is God sent. 
This is all a trance. It's a vision that he's saying, but it's coming down out of heaven. So it has a measure of authority. Obviously, God is sending this down. And it's a sheet that has four corners on it. And if there's any significance to that, is it's, it's a preview that the gospel is now going to go to the four corners of the earth. Uh, this is exactly what Jesus told them in, uh, in Acts 1.8 when he says that the, you'll receive power to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. The four corners. And so here's a sheet with four corners that is lowered down and it's full of all kinds of animals. Now, if you want to do your quiet time this afternoon, you can go to Leviticus chapter 11 and kind of read through all of the that the law said about clean animals and unclean animals. But you could only eat, a Jew could only eat clean animals. Could not eat an unclean animal. And what are the clean animals? Well, you remember um, for an animal, they had to, it had to chew the cud and divide the hoof. So pigs are definitely off the menu at that point in time because they divided the hoof, but they don't chew the cud. So pig meat was off. Uh, for fish, to eat a fish, it had to have both fins and scales. So you couldn't eat catfish because it doesn't have scales. Uh, birds, just as long as it wasn't a predator, scavenger kind of a bird, that was okay to eat. But they could even eat insects. But the clean insects were those that had wings. They walked on all fours with jointed legs above their feet to jump with. So, so you could eat uh, locusts, crickets, and grasshoppers were all on the menu. You know, grilled grasshopper just makes your mouth almost want to water. So the unclean animals, of course, were all forbidden to eat. You couldn't eat them and you couldn't touch them. They were unclean. So here comes this big sheet that's now lowered down and apparently there's clean and unclean animals in it. And a voice comes to Peter in verse 13 and it says, get up, kill, and eat. Well, at this point in time in Peter's mind, that's like, you can't do that because there's unclean animals in there. To get up and and eat that, to kill and eat an unclean animal, would be like a nightmare to a conscientious Jew. It would be like, it'd be worse than a tree-hugging vegan having a dream or they're being force-fed a hamburger or something like that. You just don't eat meat. And in this case, you don't eat those kinds of animals. It's repulsive to a Jew. And if he did it, he would immediately be unclean himself, plus he would be disobedient to the dietary laws of the Old Testament. And at this point in time, Peter apparently is still living by the Old Testament dietary laws. He's still very much a Jew living according to the ceremonial law at this point in time. Now, previously in our Lord's ministry, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus had already declared all food clean. Remember when the issue came up and, he's, and he says, it's not what enters a man that defiles a man, but what comes out of his heart. And all the sin, stuff that comes out of a heart, uh, is what defiles him. And Mark 7 verse 19, Mark adds in there, thus he declared all foods clean. But this truth, like so many of our Lord's teaching, flew at about 30,000 feet right over the heads of the apostles. And they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They're going to they're gonna start to understand it now, but not at that point in time. So how did Peter respond? Well, in verse 14, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. Now, Peter again contradicts the Lord. You know, he's done that a couple of times before. And all I think all this shows is that the old man still lives in Peter. This is even after the resurrection of Christ. You know, before He did it, it was, it was before Jesus was crucified and, and resurrected. Now Christ has been resurrected and, and Peter still has a hard time accepting this truth coming from the Lord. So he said, by no means, Lord, I've never done this before. And oftentimes, again, aren't we like that? We resist God's grace. We resist new truth that's found in the Scriptures that's really old truth but just new to us. 
but it's something we've never heard before. I run into people like that all the time with the doctrine of election. Uh, it's, just, it's difficult for them, and we just immediately rebel against it. And all this proves is that the best of men are still men at best. And even as a child of God who has the Holy Spirit, Peter still is struggling with submitting completely to the, the Word of God, to the revelation that he's receiving. And then verse 15, <clears throat> the voice comes again a second time. While God is cleansed, no longer consider unholy. So at this point in time, at least on the surface, what vision is being, what, what Peter is being told by the vision is that all the dietary laws of the Old Testament are now being abolished. They've all been fulfilled in Christ. They're no longer to govern the way you, you eat. And specifically, that all unclean animals are now declared to be clean and on the menu. So the Jewish believer could still eat their crickets and locusts, but now they can wrap them in bacon. Or they can chase it with a slab of pork ribs or something like that. So all the Old Testament dietary laws now have been taken away. Now obviously this is an illustration. This is an object lesson to go to a much deeper truth that God is actually communicating to Peter that these unclean animals are pictures of unclean humans, i.e. Gentiles. But he's not there yet. God is taking him slowly, step by step, through the fog, through all the, the, the perplexity of what he's uh, about to learn. And, uh, but at this point, he, he, goes, he goes so far. And then in verse 16, this happened three times. And immediately the object was taken up to the sky. So this vision was repeated three times. And I think at this point in time, we see the threefold repetition indicating the supreme importance of this truth. Three times. So understand, three times I'm making an exclamation mark with this whole vision, Peter. So understand this is very, very important. And it may also be, you know, in Pharaoh's dream in the Old Testament, when he had the dream about the seven fat cows followed by the seven lean cows, he was given that vision twice. And Joseph interpreted it to Pharaoh and said, part of the meaning that you got it twice is that this is, this is going to happen in the near future. It's going to happen pretty soon. Three times may mean also it's knocking at the door. And, and right as he's beginning to contemplate this, guess who starts knocking at the gate of, of the tanner's house? It's the, it's the emissaries from uh, Cornelius. But uh, all of this, I think, for Peter, he, he's, he, he's seen this vision three times, and he's beginning to think, you know, maybe God is trying to tell me something. And I think a lot of times God has to re-echo His truth because we don't always get it on the first time. But God is emphasizing this to Peter. And then look at verse 17. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be. In other words, he doesn't really understand it yet. He's probably got the idea that, okay, unclean animals are back on the menu. But he's perplexed. He is confused. He is bewildered at this point. He doesn't really get it. And I think all of this is just uh, kind of reminds me again of Winnie the Pooh, you know, sitting on the log, just kind of going, think, think, think. He's trying to figure out what does this mean, and he doesn't understand. And this is where I think we oftentimes find ourselves in a similar situation. God is leading us. God is guiding us. God is slowly teaching us, but we don't really grasp it yet. We don't understand the ways of His providence. And sometimes we find ourselves in a very confused situation, perplexed, just like Peter was. Now much of all of this, of course, what God is about is changing Peter. It's not only just bringing Gentiles into the church, but it's changing Peter from his racial prejudice against Gentiles, which he had naturally, into embracing them as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. 
And God, again, oftentimes chooses to work in very gradual little baby steps. And so the end game is to bring in Gentiles as full members, full participants in the covenant blessings of God. And yet He does it gradually in little baby steps. So we see in the book of Acts that first there was the Samaritans, okay? That's, that's kind of an advance. And now Peter is staying with a tanner. So now some of those, some of those biases against this, uh, this kind of a believer is, is being torn down. And then we have this incredible vision that he sees. And God is at work, you see, tearing down the walls of ceremonial uncleanness set forth in the Old Covenant. And at this point, Peter is perplexed. Peter does not understand. And I think that there's a great lesson in here for us. Because oftentimes, we get perplexed in life. You're reading the Scriptures, man, I don't understand that. You're starting to kind of understand, but you know, it's just trying to harmonize it with the rest of Scripture. You don't understand it very well. And, and we get perplexed in trying to interpret the Word of God. Parents can be perplexed in raising our children. That, you know, why you raise them to go this way and they seem to go that way and you raise them to believe this and act that way and sometimes they go that way, you know, different direction. And we get perplexed. God, what are you doing? I don't understand what's, what's going on. But God is as much involved in changing us as He is in dealing with them. And we need to take that to heart. Because even our times of confusion, our times of perplexity, God is working in us to move us from point A to point B. There are things we need to learn in the process as well. We're oftentimes perplexed in understanding God's will for my life. God, what what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? Oftentimes we don't understand. We're in that fog. We're in that that, that time of perplexity where we just don't we don't get it. Lord, I want more light. I want direction. But it seems like there's nothing there. We can often experience perplexity in our sanctification. What is God doing? Why does He have me in these circumstances? God, You've sent this trial into my life. Why? I don't don't get it. When are You going to take it away from me? And life is full of events that oftentimes can confuse us, perplex us, and even discourage us. And a lot of those types of circumstances come back to where God is dealing with our hearts and our attitudes towards other people. Just like with Peter and Cornelius, the Gentile. That sometimes we get in a situation where we have developed sinful attitudes towards other people. God, why why does my cubicle at work have to be next to His? I don't like this guy. He irritates me. And sometimes we have these bad attitudes towards our, our neighbor or even relatives or whoever it may be. And, and, and sometimes God brings us into a time of perplexity, a time of confusion because He's working in our life as well. He's dealing with us. He's making us see uh, that, that we don't know the future that we don't know the end result of these circumstances. We just got to learn to trust Him. And we got to learn to have more love for our fellow man. We've got to learn to love people that we may not like. And God is dealing with that in Peter's heart. And I think He deals with us at times in a similar way. Times of perplexity are as much a part of God's plan as when you're walking in the clear light. And this is what's difficult for us. But the times when you're in a fog and the times that you're confused and the times that you don't understand what God is doing, that's as much a part of the plan as it is when you finally see clarity in the answer. That's why we read in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 24, man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? You cannot understand your way. You may think that you're in a maze and you don't know whether to turn right or to the left. And Lord, why do you have me in this maze right now? Why don't you just clearly show me? And, and when we're in that maze, we need to understand that my steps are ordained by God 
How then can I understand it? Because God's ways are higher than my ways and His thoughts than my thoughts. How can my puny little brain ever hope to really comprehend and understand the mysteriousness of the way God leads us in life? That's what Peter is having to learn. God's guidance is not always initially clear. It's just like with Saul. When God wouldn't answer him, where did Saul go? King Saul in the Old Testament. Well, he went to the witch of Endor. And sometimes we're tempted to go to the world's wisdom or find the world's answers or embrace the world's values. No, 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 no. You stay firm with the Lord. You stay firm with Scripture. You trust Him. You press on in faith in the midst of the fog, in the midst of the doubts, in the midst of the confusion. God is guiding. His hand is upon you. Just trust Him. The storm clouds will eventually dissipate and you'll see the clarity of the, of the light of His rainbow. If not in this life, certainly in the life to come. But don't be tempted to seek the wisdom of the world just because you can't see the hand of God guiding you. Times of perplexity are often followed by times of clarity. When we trust in God and we do His will and we're seeking Him, you can trust that in time, God will lead us in His, in His truth. Well, that's exactly what happens with Peter. Verse 17, For while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, might be behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings. For I have sent them myself. So Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. Now the timing is absolutely perfect. So Peter has just come out of his trance He's perplexed. He's trying to figure out what in the world's going on. And these three men sent from Cornelius are at the outside gate. Now, they know better to go into a, a Jewish home. So they're respectful. They knock on the gate because they know the issues between Jew and Gentile with Jews. And they inquire whether Simon Peter is there. They find out that he is. And then apparently, Peter invites them in. And in verse 23, he invited them in and gave them lodging. So now this is a major little baby step in getting Peter from point A to point B. He's now willing to bring these Gentiles, these unclean people, into his home, which was not kosher. It was wrong. But he's doing it. And God is gradually tearing down these uh, dividing walls and leading Peter into a deeper truth. He still doesn't understand the final truth that he's going to be led to, but he's getting there. And so we pick it up at this point uh, in verse, uh, second half of verse uh, 23. And on the next day, he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. We know later on there's going to be six Jewish Christian brothers that will go with Peter back up to Caesarea. And on the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, so now he's entering into the home of a Gentile. When he entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. This is probably part of the paganism from Cornelius. Because back then you worshipped not only the pagan gods, but their human ambassadors. So that's probably some of his old paganism coming forth. Verse 26, But Peter raised him up saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. And as he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. Yet God has shown me that I should call 
Thou should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising an objection when I was sent for. So I ask for what reason you have sent for me. So again, it's starting to dawn on Peter that uh, God is now doing something with Gentiles and He can't call an un, unclean man unclean anymore. But he's still not really sure what, what's happening. So he asks them, why did you send me? I am here. It's not lawful for me to be here. Because you know, we Jews don't associate with you Gentiles. But I am here because God told me that I should no longer consider any man to be unclean. So what's next? Why am I here? He still obviously is learning. So he's come freely. He has responded in obedience. And God is now beginning to prepare for this incredible sermon that will take place in a, starting in verse 34 to, to lead these Gentiles into the family of God. So in verse 30 we read, Cornelius said, Four days ago in this hour I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. Behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said to me, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here, present before God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. I mean, that... That's the best thing any preacher could hear. We have all gathered here and we are ready to hear what you have to say to us. So Peter will launch in his sermon, uh, Lord willing, in the next, uh, next week as we look at verse 34 and following. But you see what God is doing. Uh, Peter has been in this time of confusion. God is about ready to move him from point A to point B. But he's taking him through these dark paths. He's, he's beginning to expose truth to, to Peter that he has never really contemplated before. That God is dealing with some of these deep-rooted prejudices and biases and, and racial attitudes that he had towards these Gentiles and gradually tearing down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile uh, in the covenant blessings of God. Um, He's agreeing to go with these unclean Gentiles from Joppa back up to Caesarea. He's willing to go into an unclean city, the very capital of Roman domination over his people. A city that they naturally would have despised. He's ready to go into the city where the, where the unclean Roman government had its headquarters. And now he's entered into the, the home of an unclean Roman soldier who represented all the power and dominion of the Roman government, an officer in the Roman army, and he's there now with, a, with an attitude of openness towards what God is now about ready to, to bring along His path. I think in all this, we can see certainly that God is gradually enlightening Peter into the marvelous truth of the mystery of Christ that Paul talks about later on in Ephesians and Colossians. That these Gentiles are going to be fellow heirs and again fellow members of, of the covenant blessings within the body of Christ. But he's taking Peter in those little steps into this direction. And again, by way of application, I think God leads us in similar ways. And I think His work of sanctification is a very gradual process in our life as well. Remember when God sent uh, the Israelites into the land of Canaan to conquer it? He says, I'm not going to give you a, a, a great victory all in one day. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to uproot and cast out these Gentile nations little by little. And that's what He's doing in your life. And that's what He's doing in my life. Sanctification is a work of God's grace little by little. That He's teaching us to, to, to understand and look at people differently. He's teaching us and stretching us to get rid of our old prejudices and our biases and our negative attitudes towards other people and begin to look at them in terms of the Gospel. Not in terms of how they may be different than I am 
or how they may act differently or look differently or speak differently or dress differently or whatever it is, that we need to look at them as potential objects of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And God's grace is out to transform us in the process. So if you're in the time of confusion, a time of perplexity, regardless of what it is, know that God has you there for a purpose. That God is there to teach you things in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that fog that you don't comprehend. That God has you there. That times of perplexity are as much a part of His plan as when everything seems to be going right. And our responsibility is to not panic, to not suddenly seek the ways of the world, but to trust in God, to draw close to Him, to continue to seek His guidance, but just to wait upon Him knowing that in His good timing, He's going to bring us to the destination that He has for us. And again, in light of what this whole context is about, a lot of this deals with our attitudes towards other people. So I ask you in closing, is there someone or a group of people that you have an issue with in your heart and life? Someone that you just think negatively about? Someone that you look down upon? That you, you would much rather pray an imprecatory prayer of God's curses on them than think about, Lord, could you use me to bring the gospel of Christ to them? Because see, God is working in our hearts. He's, he's to bring us from point A to point B. And a lot of that is just moving into a greater love and compassion towards sinners around us, regardless of what their background is. And that's what God is doing with Peter. And next time, Lord willing, we're going to see how He preaches the good news of the Gospel to them. And we're going to see uh, what He actually says and what God then is going to do in the hearts of these Gentile, unclean unbelievers. And it's a glorious thing. So we'll look forward to continuing the story, uh, Lord willing, next week. So let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do uh, thank You that we can watch and learn from how You are dealing with Peter in this situation. How, Lord, You have led him into uh, circumstances that have certainly challenged his biases and his prejudices. That You're beginning to, to roll back the truth about the temporary ceremonial aspects of the old covenant law and to open the door into a deeper understanding of the glory of the new covenant that it's not based on grace or race but it's based on grace it's not based upon someone's ethnicity but it's based upon someone being born again and having true saving faith in Jesus Christ. And then regardless of their background, whether they're Jew or Gentile, regardless of their upbringing, they become 100% a new member in the new covenant community of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank You that we can watch and learn and see how, Father, You deal with us in our own Christian lives. How You sometimes bring us into times of confusion where we don't understand what You're doing. But Lord, it's a part of Your plan. It's a part of Your purpose. And there's always a good end that You're leading us toward. So Father, give us grace to trust You in those times. Give us a love for our fellow man. And use us for Your glory and for Your honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.